The Gospel of John, chapter 11. We're going to read from verse 28 to verse 44. When she, Martha, had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was laying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Father, we worship you and we worship your son this morning. And we're so grateful to know you and to believe in your son. And Father, we just thank you for everything you are to us, everything that you have given Jesus to be to us. And Lord, as we look now at Jesus in this story, we pray, Father, that you would help us to see him. And by seeing him, you would help us to see you, Father, and to understand you. And Lord, we thank you that you've revealed yourself, and by knowing you, we have the most wonderful hope. So Lord, I just pray that by your Spirit, you would help me to preach this message and deliver your thoughts from this text, that this wouldn't be about what I say, but about what you say. And I pray that you would give us all the hearts to hear, Lord, and do a work this morning in all of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. 
This is our third Sunday studying the story of the sickness, death, and raising of Lazarus. The first Sunday, this was two Sundays ago, we looked at verses 1 through 16 in this chapter. And we saw that Lazarus was sick, and Lazarus' sisters sent for Jesus and said, the one that you love is sick, please come. I mean, in other words, please come and help. And we saw that Jesus purposely stayed. So even though he loved Lazarus and loved that family, the thought of Lazarus being sick and dying wasn't a good thought to him. He intentionally stayed, and it was his plan for his beloved friend to die and to be certainly dead, gone beyond all reasonable doubt, in order that God's glory might be revealed and in order that others would believe in him and believe in the Father. So what we saw on that first Sunday was that God is in control even of our sufferings, amen? And when we, his beloved children, suffer, that doesn't mean he's out of control, and it certainly doesn't mean that he doesn't love us. That's the lesson we learned from this story. Last week, we looked at verse 17 through 27. Jesus now arrives in at the uh, outskirts of Bethany, and Martha runs out to meet him. And Jesus declares to Martha in the text that we looked at last week that he is the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. And what we saw last week is that the resurrection and the life is not something external to Jesus that he gives us. He's not, he doesn't say, yeah, I think I, I, think I got that actually somewhere in, in the closet. I can give that to you. But that he himself is the resurrection and the life. And he gives us resurrection and the life, certainly by giving himself. He gives us that by offering himself in our place. And we receive the resurrection and we receive eternal life by being united to Jesus Christ by faith. And when we believe in Jesus Christ, because he died for us in our place and he rose from the dead, when a person believes in Jesus, they are united to Christ in his death and his resurrection. In other words, his death becomes your death and his resurrection becomes your resurrection. Just as your sins became his sins in a sense, he took them onto himself and he died for them even though he never sinned. He was treated as a sinner. And we receive his righteousness, even though it's not our own righteousness. We become the righteousness of God in him. And so we have eternal life in Jesus and only in Jesus. Nobody, brothers and sisters and friends, can have eternal life outside of Jesus. Amen? It cannot happen. No one can have righteousness outside of Jesus or life or a resurrection incorruptible, incorruptible because only Jesus is the one who can deal with your with your sin problem, that is at the root of death. Amen? So that's what we saw last week. And what we saw also, and Jesus says that this, is that for believers, nothing is truly fatal. For believers. If you are a Christian, nothing is truly fatal. You have passed from death to life. There is now no condemnation for you. And you, he will raise you again on the last day. Incorruptible with himself. This morning, we're going to be looking at the final act of this story, when Jesus actually raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, 
This is a remarkable passage. And it's not remarkable only because Jesus raises a putrefying corpse from the dead. I mean, and that is remarkable. That's, what we read this morning is, is surprising, is amazing. A dead man, four days dead, was raised. But I'd like us to especially observe and consider this morning how intensely emotional this final act in the story is. Did you pick that up as we read it? And it's not only Mary and the people that are with Mary that are being emotional in this passage that we read, right? In fact, John draws our attention not merely to Mary and to the people's emotions, but here we have one of the most emotional pictures of Jesus in the New Testament. Can you think of other times where Jesus is this emotional? Yes, there are other places. But this is certainly, this ranks up there with one of the most emotional times in the life of Jesus that's recorded. And this passage gives us an important window into Jesus' emotional life. Would you agree? You ever wondered, like, what was going on in Jesus' heart when he was doing all that stuff? You know? How did Jesus feel about it? Well, here's an important window into that. So we see what Jesus does. He raises Lazarus from the dead. But what John the Apostle wants us to see in this passage also, and importantly, is what was going on in Jesus when he raised Lazarus from the dead. It's simply not enough, friends, for us to recognize that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. We, we won't grasp the full significance of the story. We won't take away what John wants us to take away from the story if we just walk out of here this morning and say, hey, I learned this morning that Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. That's not enough. John wants us to see what inwardly propelled Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. Look at verse 38. As Jesus comes to the tomb, it says he was deeply moved within. So the process here of raising Lazarus from the dead was, very, was, was a very emotional process here for Jesus. And that's what we want to look at this morning because Jesus' heart is revealed in this wonderful display of emotion. So I've divided the sermon this morning up into three sections. Number one, the context of Jesus' emotion. Number two, the emotion of Jesus itself displayed in the story. And number three, we'll close with the result of his emotion. So the context, the emotion itself, what was it, what did he feel, and then what was the result of it? So let's begin with the context of Jesus' emotion. Let's look back at verse 27, or excuse me, 28 again. So in verse 28, we are jumping right into the middle of the, of the narrative and into the middle of the story. Jesus has recently arrived at the outskirts of Bethany, the town where Lazarus and his family lived. And Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. Martha has just gone out to meet Jesus and to speak with him. And Jesus has just finished speaking with Martha. And now we see in verse 28 that Martha goes to tell Mary that, the, that Jesus is calling her. So evidently, Jesus now finished speaking with Martha, says, go get Mary. I need to talk to her. And you'll notice in verse 28 that Mary goes secretly. Do you see that word? Mary goes secretly. So 
The intention here is to uh, organize a private meeting between Mary and Jesus so that all the people aren't around. And we'll see that that actually doesn't work. She says to Mary, the teacher, that's how she refers to Jesus, the teacher is calling for you. One of the glorious titles of Jesus, friends, is teacher. Do you know that? Right? And has that title changed, do you think? Do you think he's no longer the teacher? Do you know Jesus as the teacher? Or is that just something for those people who knew him back in the day, right? Jesus came into the world to show us the Father. Amen? That's one of the main themes of the Gospel of John. And that's what teaching means. It's to show, to reveal. And Jesus, one of his primary... uh, one of the primary things that Jesus, is, Jesus does is he reveals and he teaches and he shows and he's never stopped doing that. He continues to teach us through his words and his doctrine and his preaching that we read in the scriptures. But Jesus didn't only teach with words. Jesus also taught them uh, in other ways. For example, Jesus was teaching them by, this, by the events in this story, by delaying. Right? By not going to Lazarus right away, by allowing Lazarus to die, and by raising Lazarus from the dead after, the, after four days, he was, he was, in essence, teaching them about God and about himself and about salvation. So it's not only with words. And in a few more days, Jesus would be laying down his life upon the cross to die for the sins of the world, and by that action, he would be teaching, amen? He'd be teaching us about the love of God and the righteousness of God and the wrath of God and the salvation of God by dying for us. So he is the teacher, and you need to know him as the teacher. We should never downplay teaching. Mary runs out to meet Jesus. She's eager for his presence. But her quickness ruins any hope for privacy because when she runs out of the house, then the people that are mourning with her think, oh my goodness, she's being overcome with grief. We better run out with her to the tomb where she's, where she's probably going to mourn. And I think it's an interesting picture. If we had a satellite view of that town, you'd see Mary running out of that house. You'd see a crowd of people running behind Mary and they'd be beelining it towards Jesus who's just outside of the town. So it'd be an interesting picture of a crowd of crying, mourning people running towards Jesus. Look at verse 32 with me. When Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet. And she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, if you remember, that's the exact words that Martha said to Jesus, right? They said the the exact same thing to him when they encountered him. And here's what the the Bible scholar R.C. Trent says, and I believe he's touching something here. Quote, The words with which her sister had greeted the Lord, thus repeating themselves a second time from her lips, gives us a glimpse of all that had passed in that mournful house since the beloved was laid in earth. Often during that four days interval, the sisters had said one to the other how different the issue might have been if the divine friend had been with them. Such had been the one thought in their hearts, the one word upon the lips of both, 
and therefore was so naturally the first word spoken by each. So basically he says the fact that they both say the exact same thing reveals that that's all they were thinking for the last four days, right? If he had been here, if he had been here, it would have been different. And unlike Martha, Mary says nothing more. Martha says, if you had been here, our brother would, have, would still be alive, but even now I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. But Mary doesn't say that. Mary just, I think, is totally broken and overcome with her loss. That's all she can see is that Lazarus is, is, is gone, and that's all she feels. Did you know, um, here's a very interesting fact. There are only three instances in which this Mary is portrayed in the Bible. There's only three episodes where we can read about this woman. And the interesting thing is, here they are Luke, in Luke chapter 10, in John chapter 11, and in John chapter 12, in the next chapter. And in all three instances, Mary is at the feet of Jesus in all three instances. You remember Luke chapter 10? That's the chapter where Martha's a little upset with Mary because Mary's not helping her serve in the house, right? And so um, Martha goes to Jesus and complains about it and says, why, you should tell my sister to come help me. There's all these people out of work and she's not doing anything, right? I, I got all the work to myself. And what does Jesus say? Well, what is Mary doing, by the way? She's, she's listening, specifically. And the text actually says she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him as he's teaching. And Jesus commends Mary and says, Martha, you're, you're worried about a lot of things, but you don't need to be worried about those things. She's chosen the better part. This is the time to be listening and learning from me. So in Luke 10, we have uh, Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning. In John 11, we have Mary falling at Jesus' feet, weeping in grief. And in John 12, you'll see it in the first part of chapter 12, we have Mary prostrated at Jesus's feet, worshiping him, breaking that ointment, pouring that ointment over Jesus's feet and washing his feet with, his, with her hair. Isn't that interesting? So the only three times we see Mary is at the feet of Jesus. And I'd like to suggest that Mary provides for us all a precedent and a classic example, friends, of relationship with Jesus and the different postures that we too can certainly have as we relate to the Lord Jesus Christ ourselves. We can still sit at the feet of Jesus and learn, amen? Even though he's not physically here, every time we go to the Bible, to learn about Jesus and to hear about Jesus and to hear from Jesus. If we go with that attitude, Lord, you are the living God. This is your word and I want to learn about God and I want to learn about myself and I want to learn about this world and about life and about salvation from you. We're sitting at the feet of Jesus and we're learning. When you come to church, even now, and you say, I want to come to church to praise God, to pray before God, to minister to the saints together, but also to hear the word of God proclaimed. I want to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn. Now, you can come to church and you can read the Bible and your attitude isn't that. You're not really sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning, right? It, maybe it's just a chore or a duty. But you can actually 
have that same heart of Mary and learn at his feet. Now, how many of you know we can also fall at the feet of Jesus and weep? Amen? We can still do that. When we are confused, when we are suffering, we go to him and we pour out our hearts and our souls to the Lord Jesus, who's the living God, who listens and who cares. Amen? That is something you can still do. That is a way you can still relate to Jesus. And we can also prostrate ourselves and worship Jesus, amen, at his feet. Just like Mary in John chapter 12, you might look at that and say, man, she's so lucky. She had Jesus' physical presence there. She could just lavish him with, with this beautiful gift and love. Too bad for me, I can't do that, right? No, that's not, that's not true. Even though Jesus is not physically here, we can still worship him and shower him with praise, amen? and love, and thanks, and gifts, and time. We can do that, and we should do that, because I think Mary shows us what we not only can be doing, but what we should be doing all the time. We should be relating to Jesus in these three ways. That's where he answers, you said? Actually, that, that is the context um, of Jesus' emotion is Mary weeping at his feet. Jesus is deeply moved, profoundly and internally stirred when he sees Mary at his feet weeping and the crowds weeping also. So that's the context of the emotion of Jesus in this story is the grief and the pain and the suffering and the weeping of the people that he sees and the ones that he loves. So secondly... Let's look at the emotion of Jesus itself in this, in this passage. Verse 33, although before I read it, I'd like to say this. The first thing to say about this intense display of emotion by Jesus, I think the first thing to say is that this is not the only place where Jesus shows emotion. All through the Gospels, we see Jesus show emotion. Jesus was not unemotional. Jesus was not stoic. Now, there are some people who think being stoical is the right way to live your life, right? That any other way is stupid. Have you ever heard of stoicism? They say, look, you can't help your, the fact that there's problems in this world, and so the best way to deal with it is be reasonable about it, right? Be Spock-like about it. And uh, there's no use in, 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 in causing yourself more suffering and pain by being emotional. In fact, your pain primarily comes from you being emotional. If you didn't care so much about things, if you kind of had a more objective look at things, then, yeah, bad things would happen, but they wouldn't ruffle you at all. You wouldn't even experience pain, right? And so they actually promote this as great wisdom, and there's certainly some wisdom to it, right? But Jesus was not a Stoic. Jesus was not a Buddhist. Jesus didn't go around saying, you know, if you really want to end suffering, end desire. That's not what he said. He said, if you really want to end suffering, believe in me. Jesus was emotional. He was moved with compassion at people's plight. 
For example, Jesus sees someone with leprosy, and it says in the text explicitly he was moved with compassion. Jesus sees the crowds as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is moved with compassion for the crowds, and he heals them and serves them because of his compassion. Jesus sighs over unbelief. There's certain occasions in the Gospels that are recorded, and these are really just representative, right? It's not like we can say, you know, there's only, you know, 11 times Jesus was emotional. These are just representative of his whole life. Where, where Jesus encounters unbelief in people, and the text explicitly says that he groans deeply within, or he sighs, like, oh, like he's really, he's really grieved by this unbelief. The commentator Henry Barclay Sweet said, Obstinate sin drew from Christ a deeper sigh than the sight of suffering. And that's saying a lot because suffering drew a deep sigh from his heart. But Jesus knew that suffering could be restored and healed. Obstinate sin, what can you do with that? Jesus, we see, gets angry at evil. We see that when he makes a whip and cleanses the temple. We see that in various occasions when he encounters the hardness of heart of people. And it, the text explicitly says he was angry with them. We see Jesus crying tears not only in this chapter. We see him crying tears over Jerusalem. Interestingly enough, Luke tells us at his triumphal entry, you think, man, that's a time to be glad, Jesus, not to have tears. You ride into Jerusalem and there's a crowd that comes out to meet you singing Hosanna to the son of David, the Messiah. They're receiving him into the city of God, recognizing that he's the Messiah and he weeps over Jerusalem, it says in Luke. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often you would destroy the, you destroy the ones God sends to you and how often would I have gathered you like a hen gathers its chicks under its wings, but you wouldn't. And so he cries tears. And I think another extremely intensely emotional scene in the life of Jesus is the Garden of Gethsemane. And of course, his whole passion, but particularly in the Garden of Gethsemane, where we're explicitly told he was, he be, in the King James, he became hev, heavy and very sore, right? And in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, it says, Jesus cried out to God with loud with loud crying and tears. He was wailing in the Garden of Gethsemane with tears streaming down his face. The prophet Isaiah says that Jesus, the Messiah, that the Messiah would be a man of sorrows, as we sang, and acquainted with grief. So no, he was not unemotional. Not only was Jesus a man of sorrows, but he was also a man of joy. In Luke chapter 10, verse 21, and it's an interesting moment for Jesus to be joyful because it's immediately after he declares, woe unto you, Bethsaida, woe unto you, Chorazin, because if the miracles that were done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago with, with sackcloth and with ashes, and he was upset and grieved over their unbelief. And then immediately after it says, at that time, Jesus greatly exalted in the Holy Spirit. And the word is he, he leapt with joy, praising God that God has hidden these things from the wise and the foolish, uh, from, the, from the wise, and has revealed it unto the foolish and to the babes. 
So Jesus was a man of joy, trusting in God, joy over the the lost being found, like a woman finding her lost coin or a a shepherd finding his lost sheep. Even though Jesus grieved over the lost, he he was rejoicing over the lost who were found. And he also had joy in the future. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. So he was a man of hope and a man of joy as well as a man of sorrow. And brothers and sisters, saying all this about Jesus is so important because as Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us, Jesus is the exact representation of who? Of God the Father, amen? In other words, when we see the emotional Jesus, we're not to say, well, that's just his humanity, right? You know, that's just the human Jesus. The divine Jesus doesn't have any emotion. The Father doesn't have any emotion. That's just the Father sending his son into the world and the son experiencing emotion for the very first time. And I think that would be a mistake, and that is a mistaken idea of God, that God is emotional. In fact, how many of you know that um, in historical theology, there's, there were many theologians, and there's this idea in theology that God is without emotions and without passions. Why do people think that? What is the reason? Well, the reason is actually quite simple. We can't wrap our human minds around, our finite minds around, how could God, the omniscient one, the sovereign one, the perfect self-sufficient one, how could he be stirred uh, with emotion, with sorrow, or joy even? God knows everything. God foreknows everything. Nothing takes God by surprise. He's sovereign. He rules over all. He controls all things. And he's perfect. He needs nothing, right? He needs nothing. And so the theologians who have, I think, made a mistake, they've said, well, if God knows everything, he's not surprised by anything, he needs nothing, then certainly God is without emotions and without passions. Here's a quote from an old medieval theologian. And um, just ask yourself what you think about this quote. Think about it. Quote, God is compassionate. God is compassionate. Amen? In terms of our experience, because we experience the effect of compassion, God is not compassionate in terms of his own being because he does not experience the feeling of compassion. What does that theologian mean? <laughs> what that theolo- He's not contradicting himself, actually. What he means is, we may rightly say God is compassionate because we experience the effects of compassion, but when we say God is compassionate, we don't mean that he feels any compassion. Because, as this theologian argues, God is perfect and self-sufficient and all-knowing and complete within himself. But it's funny because when you read the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, what kind of a God do you see? I mean, what, what kind of impression does the Bible want us to see of God? Does the Bible want us to see an impression of God in which he has no emotion, no passions, and that we only experience the effects of his emotion, of, of you know, compassion and love. No. 
In fact, the Bible is, is unusual, brothers and sisters, in that it presents God as tremendously passionate. Amen? And that it presents God as omniscient, all-knowing, in control, and perfect within himself. And that is, I believe, the great mystery of the one true God of the Bible is that he is all those things that the theologians say he is, perfect, omnipotent, omniscient, and wonder of it all, he is a God of love and a God of mercy and a God of compassion, not because we simply feel the effects of his mercy, but because he's actually merciful which is an amazing thing. And no, don't ask me to wrap my mind around it. I honestly can't. I don't know what it's like to be omniscient. And so I can only speculate. Well, I think if I was omniscient, I wouldn't have any emotion. Well, that's not how God has revealed himself to be. But what I think the theologians want to guard is a good thing. And we can say with them this, or at least we can say this to maybe reassure these medieval theologians, God's emotions never get the best of him. What do I mean by that? What I mean is God doesn't plan something and then his plans get ruined because he had an emotional breakdown, right? <laughs> Which is what we experience as human beings, right? And I think that's the fear is like, no, if we say that God's emotional, then what, what's going to happen is we're saying God is like us and we kind of lose our heads when we're emotional, right? But that's not how God is. And so we can, we, can, uh, we can console them and assure them, no, the God of the Bible isn't out of control. God knew when he created the world he would be emotional. Amen? God knew that this is going to hurt me a lot, but I will allow it to come my way. So God is not um, taken by surprise by his passions and emotions. God is not pulled around by his compassions and emotions. He is that, but he has allowed it to come his way. And in fact, brothers and sisters, this is exactly what's illustrated in our story here. Jesus here is grieved and emotional and weeping, and he planned the whole thing, right? <laughs> he planned it. Lazarus is dead four days, and that family is weeping because he delayed. And in fact, if you look at verse 33, the last, uh, at least in the New American Standard, the last words are, and he was troubled do you see that in your, in your translations? So it says here, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And in the Greek, it is literally, he troubled himself. In the Greek, he troubled himself. Now, have you ever heard people say that? Don't trouble yourself, right? Don't get all bent out of shape about it. Don't allow yourself to be angry. Don't allow yourself to be sorrowful about that thing or that and what, Jesus, what this text is saying is that Jesus allowed himself to be troubled here. He wasn't out of control. There was pain, there was suffering, and Jesus, in love, allowed himself to be stirred. That doesn't show that he's out of control. That shows that he's good. It shows that he's good, that he allowed himself to be affected by the suffering that he was seeing. That's a mark of goodness, not weakness. Amen? There's another important thing to notice in the Greek text. These things aren't always brought out in the English text, unfortunately, but thankfully you don't need to be a Greek scholar in order to notice these things. 
All you need to do is go read the English books of the Greek scholars who write commentaries on these things. You, go write, you read any commentary on John 11, and the commentators, all of them, point out that the text in the Greek, when it says Jesus was deeply moved in spirit, now some of your translations may bring this out, the, the, the literal meaning here is he snorted with anger. So there's Mary weeping at his feet. There's this, these people weeping. And as Jesus says, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he snorted with anger and troubled himself. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says he was angry in his spirit. The New Living Translation, which is a paraphrase, says he was moved with indignation. And that's touching on what's going on here. John is not, brothers and sisters, and you'll miss the point. He's not saying Jesus was simply sad. He's saying Jesus had a violent reaction to what he saw and got angry. Did you know that about this story? It's interesting, isn't it? He snorted with anger. Now the question is, why? What is he angry about? Now, though his anger arises when he looks at Mary and when he looks at the Jews weeping, I believe it is certainly wrong to say that he was angry at them. Why is he angry? Well, he was looking at them. But should we conclude that he was angry with them? I think that's certainly wrong. Mary and these Jewish people who are mourning with her are not doing anything wrong, are they? What are they doing? They're sorrowing. They're suffering because their friend is dead and Mary's brother is dead. I think it would be cruel of Jesus to get angry with them. Well, some argue in response to what I'm saying, no, no, he was angry at their unbelief. You know, they're sorrowing and they should be hopeful and they should be believing. Forgive me for saying, but I think that's hogwash, actually. <laughs> they're not unbelieving. They don't know Jesus is going to raise him from the dead right then and there. They had no reason to suspect Jesus would raise him from the dead right there. Even Mary, who said, I know that you could raise him from the dead, she didn't actually expect him to raise him from the dead. She didn't say, I'm glad you're here because I know you're going to raise him from the dead, right? And these Jews were not without hope altogether. They believed in the resurrection of the dead on the last day. They were just sorrowing and, and mourning because he's, he died, and that was a sad and painful thing. They weren't despairing ultimately. Amen? And so, no, I don't think there's any reason to think he was angry with them or for their unbelief or because they didn't have hope. But let us look at what Jesus immediately does next, and I think that will tell us what his anger is all about. So he gets angry. Okay, he's angry. What does he do? Where does his anger direct him? Where does he go with that anger? Well, look at verse 34. The, the sentence runs on. He was, he snorted with anger and, was, and troubled himself and said, where have you laid him? And verse 38, Jesus again being, it's the same Greek word, agitated, angry, full of indignation, came to the tomb. So we see that Jesus' anger in the text is channeled or directed 
or causes him to immediately move towards the dead body in the tomb. In other words, brothers and sisters, I believe what Jesus is angry about and what Jesus is starting to see read about in this story is death itself. And more specifically, the one who has the power of death, Satan. I believe that's what Jesus is angry about at this moment. Death, hell, and Satan. The theologian Benjamin Warfield speaks for the majority of commentators when he wrote this. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom Jesus has come into the world to destroy. His soul is held by rage and he advances to the tomb in Calvin's words, quote, as a champion who prepares for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance and open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe, Jesus smites in our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for and with us in our oppression, and under the impulse of these feelings has wrought our redemption." I think he just perfectly captures the idea of what's going on here. And don't you like Calvin's words there? Calvin's picture, as a champion, he goes towards the tomb preparing for con conflict and combat. Now, now, you know, in the Old Testament, God used the Assyrians to punish Israel, right? Remember this? And... He said, you, you know, Assyria, you're, a, you're the rod of my anger in my hand with which I punish Israel. But the way that you have thought and the way that you have behaved towards my people, even though I used you to judge them, brings condemnation upon you. And when I'm finished judging them by you, I'm going to judge you and punish you in my wrath for your haughtiness and for your um, cruelty, and you didn't share my heart. For I don't afflict with joy. I don't afflict gladly. The scripture says that he does not afflict the children of men joyfully. God is just and he gives us what is just, but men are not that. Satan is not that. Death is not that. Hell is not that. And so I think like the Assyrians whom God uses to punish who God used to punish Israel and yet afterwards punish the Assyrians. God has used Satan, death, and hell to punish mankind for their sins, but they have stored up for themselves condemnation in the way that they have happily, lustily devoured them in the pride of their hearts. How does the Bible describe Satan and death and hell? Does it describe Satan, death, and hell as a friend, a humble servant of God? who does the Father's will with the Father's heart? No, the Bible describes death and hell like a gaping, gluttonous mouth, greedily consuming all that it can. Think hungry hippos. Is that God's heart? 
going to kill you, going to kill you, going to kill you, <laughs> right? No. You never played Hungry Hippos, Jonathan? <laughs> I played it when I was a kid. Greedily consuming all that it can. Hell's and death's mouth is never satisfied. They want more, they want more, they want more, they want more. Satan is said to be a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There's no mercy, there's no compassion, there's no heart of God. He is an enemy, death is an enemy, hell is an enemy. Revelation 20 says Satan, death, and hell will be thrown into the lake of fire. Amazing. I believe that at that moment, Jesus was angry at Satan for his rebellion against God, for tempting Adam and Eve in the garden, for deceiving the world, for ruling over it with lies and wickedness and death. And he was angry. And he saw and knew Satan's reign was coming to an end. His head would soon be crushed under my angry foot. <laughs> Do you think when Jesus stamps on his foot, there's no anger? Kind of like, sorry, Satan, I have to do this. Yeah. No. Verse 35 tells us something else remarkable. Jesus is not only angry. Jesus wept. So he literally goes from being angry to weeping, or perhaps not sequentially. He, he has anger and weeping at the same time. The Greek word here is different than the word crying and weeping that's used for Mary and for the women and for the other Jews. The weeping that, the, that that's talking about is wailing and crying. They're loud. The weeping that Jesus has here is simply tears streaming down his face. The word is tears coming down the face. So Jesus isn't wailing. He's not crying. But he's angry and tears are coming down his face. And we need to interpret those tears. Some again say he's, sorrowful. he's sorrowing over their unbelief. And I think that's nonsense. I believe Jesus was weeping because they were weeping, or maybe better, he was weeping with them. He was doing what Romans 12, 15 says that we should do, which is what? Weep with those who weep, okay? Jesus saw what was going on better than anyone else saw what was going on, and Jesus saw their pain, and he understood their pain, and he loved them, and he wept with them. I think that's the most simple way to interpret Jesus wept. I don't think Jesus was only weeping for Lazarus and the family and for the people that were there. I think Jesus saw this situation as representative of the countless situations like this situation, and I think Jesus was weeping for that family and also for the world. I think he was weeping for our sorrows and for our deaths, for yours and for mine. I really do. I think that on this text we could say, Jesus has wept for me. John Hutchison says, he was gazing into the skeleton face of the world. And these were not tears of despair, brothers and sisters, they were tears of sorrow. Jesus was not despairing here, and yet he still wept. These were not foolish tears. You don't come up to him and say, why are you crying? They were tears of goodness. 
And I believe there's an important lesson for us to learn in, the, in these tears. Until Jesus Christ returns, until the restoration of all things, until the day when Jesus wipes away all tears from our eyes, until that day, Christianity is not about blocking up your tear ducts and warding off sorrow like a plague. Anytime it rears its head, whack it down. Repression. Repression. Thank you. Until the day God wipes away our tears, we as Christians, our message to one another and our messages to the our message to the world is not stop crying. Jesus didn't say, cheer up, guys. God's in control of all this. And God was in control of all this. Why, why would it have been callous for him to just say, Mary, get up, why are you crying? Because Mary was in pain. Why was she in pain? Because the curse hurts. Let's not forget that. And like in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, when God looks upon his people in Egypt, he says, I know their sufferings and afflictions. I know them. I'm familiar with them. Jesus is here. He says the same thing. Jesus, revealing the Father, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief not because he was a sinner. Sorrow doesn't automatically mean you're under condemnation. Sorrow doesn't automatically mean you're guilty before God. But because he loved sinners, he understood sinners, and he willingly joined himself to them in their sufferings. That's what God is like, friends. That's what Jesus was like. That's what the prophets were like in the Old Testament. They wept. That's what the apostles are like in the New Testament. Should it be any different for us as Christians as well? And so in saying that, I'd like to make this statement this morning. I believe that the Christian life ought to have both joy and sorrow in it. You should have sorrow in your life. The world should see Christians weeping and having sorrow. And we shouldn't think, no, if they see us crying, weeping, sad, we'll lose our witness. Actually, you might gain your witness. They might say to you and to us as a church, see how they loved. Which is what they said about Jesus here when he wept. Sorrow and joy are not incompatible. In fact, sorrow and joy contribute to one another. We have sorrow because we have joy. Christian sorrow testifies that we have hope. Christian sorrow testifies that we believe there is something better for people and for this world. Christian sorrow testifies that we believe in God and his son and that we care for people and that we love people and that we believe in a better time that's coming. So our joy in who God is and what he has done actually in an ironic way, contributes to our sorrow. And our sorrow contributes to our joy because as we feel sorrow and pain in this world, it increases our joy. Yes, God will deliver us. God has delivered us through his son. Now we're just waiting for the blessed result of that deliverance. 
So they contribute. They're not incompatible in any way. Our joy in the Lord, brothers and sisters, does not nullify our sorrow or grief. So don't ever think that, man, if I only had joy in the Lord, I'd never have tears. I'd never have sorrow. I'd never have grief. Nor does our sorrow and grief nullify our joy in the Lord. But the joy of the Lord is our strength that supports us and carries us through our suffering and our sorrow so that we never sorrow in despair. We never sorrow and have no hope. And the world ought to see us have both so that they can say, man, these Christians are some joyful. But the weird thing about it is, I know they're joyful and it's not based upon ignorance. Their joy is not naive joy, right? These Christians are hopeful, but it's not because they're blind to the sorrow in this world, right? That they have rose-colored glasses on. I think that's the lesson we learn here as we see Jesus in his emotion. And just in closing this morning, thank you for your patience. The result of Jesus' emotion in verse 36, they say, see how he loved him when they see his tears. But as beautiful as his tears were in that they revealed his love and they did, man, we would say to that observer, you ain't seen nothing yet, right? You see Jesus crying for Lazarus, you ain't seen nothing yet. Not just because he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, because he's about to go to the cross and die for all of our sins. Then you can really say, see how he loved us when he died for us. Jesus says in verse 40, he is about to show the glory of God, the glory of the love of God, the glory of the power of God, what God can do in reversing the curse and bringing about life, the glory of his grace in doing that for us, even though we don't deserve it. Jesus stands before the tomb. He lifts up his eyes to the Father. He doesn't pray and ask the Father, to raise Lazarus from the dead here, he actually just prays and thanks God for the perfect fellowship that he has with God, for the perfect harmony that he has with God. And he prays that in the presence of all the people so that they may believe that God sent him and that the fullness of God is in him. So everybody knows this miracle comes from the Father, through the Father, because of the Father, and because Jesus is one with the Father. And just like Jesus will do for all of us and for everyone who are in the graves, he cries out for the dead man to come forth and the putrefying corpse comes forth. The putrefying corpse comes forth. No longer putrefied, thankfully. But this is a man who was long gone. And the joy comes. Probably in just less than a few weeks, Jesus himself will be lying in a tomb himself wrapped up like Lazarus in grave clothes. Why is he in the tomb? Not because he was sick, but because he willingly laid down his life 
for us. And as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus, the purpose of his coming was to die on the cross for us, for your sins, for my sins, for all the sins that we have committed thus far in our lives and for all the sins we have yet to commit. He took them all upon himself. He died in our place. And by his atoning death, he pays the penalty we deserve and he puts away our sins by the sacrifice of himself. If Jesus has taken away your sins, then your sins are taken away. It's not something you have to deal with. Isn't that awesome news? See, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but Lazarus was still in his grave clothes and they had to unwrap him and he maybe stunk of the stench still a bit. And eventually Lazarus would live, live his days out and die again. But Jesus, when he was raised, what does it say of his grave clothes? They didn't have to unwrap Jesus. He didn't say, I am the resurrection and life. Can you, can you take this off me now? <laughs> right? What does it say? His grave clothes were just laying there right where they were. His, the, the, the head thing that was on him was wrapped up and folded and put neatly to the side because he was raised incorruptible because by his death, he actually dealt with the root problem of death. He dealt with our sins. And by his death, the Bible tells us that he spoiled Satan, death, and hell. It says, you cannot touch me. Death has no longer Death no longer has dominion over me, and death no longer has dominion over anyone who puts their faith in me. They are robbed and spoiled through the death of Jesus. God doesn't just want to know doesn't just want us to know what he's done, but he wants us to know why He's done it as well, and the heart that he has in doing what he does. And we learn from this beautiful story that God loves us, God sees our suffering, and allows himself to be troubled by it. And God, in his care for us, delivers us and delivers all those who will put their trust in him. Salvation is the result of his emotion. And so, brothers and sisters, may we see his glory and may we worship at his feet. Please stand with me as we pray. Father in heaven, you are the most beautiful and wonderful person. We thank you so much for what we've read and the revelation of Jesus and the revelation of yourself in Jesus. And Lord, I just pray that you would just use the truth that we looked at this morning and touch our hearts and do a work in our hearts and cause us, Father, to leave here just rejoicing in hope and loving you and worshiping you and not despairing and not being ashamed of our sorrow. Thank you that you see our afflictions and you care. Lord, we love you, and we just thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.